Greetings, this is Douglas Gimple, Senior Portfolio Specialist at Diamond Hill Capital Management, and this is Understanding Edge. Joining me today is Grady Burkett, Portfolio Manager on the Diamond Hill International and Global Strategies. Grady joined Diamond Hill in 2014, and prior to that had worked at Morningstar on the equity research team. Grady's been on the podcast before to discuss his industry perspectives, as well as to discuss the launch of our international strategy. Today, we're going to take a different approach, and instead of looking forward, we're going to look back on the calendar year that just closed out and how events of the past year will shape the future. We're going to hit the hot-button topics such as Brexit, the ongoing trade war between the U.S. and China, and the impact of low or negative rates globally. Thank you and enjoy. So, Grady, thanks for joining me for this uh, 2019 recap. Uh, let's start with China and the U.S. You know, the ongoing trade war that's been one of the main focuses of the global economy for the past, call it two and a half to three years. The last four or five months of 2019 were significant for the ongoing trade wars. We had the uncertainty and volatility that erupted in August based on comments from both parties, followed by what has been viewed as major progress with the agreement of, of phase one of the trade deal. What are your thoughts on the back and forth developments and the lack of clear progress outside of this nebulous phase one agreement? Well, I think the pessimism uh, really built throughout the previous year, 2018, um, and then toward the end of 2018 and early into 2019, um, that's, when, that's when there was really the height of uncertainty around what was going to happen with trade between China and the U.S. And Actually, investors had the opportunity to buy uh, shares of some of pretty high-quality Chinese companies at pretty significant discounts. Um, so for us, for example, in, in June of 2018, we had a little under 5% of the portfolio allocated to Chinese companies. And by the middle of 2019, that allocation had doubled, uh, almost doubled to around 9%. Um, so th th throughout 2019, despite the fact that the trade negotiations really haven't gone anywhere, in my view, <laughs> Um, the Chinese stock market actually reco recovered pretty nicely. Um, but, you know, I think this is a geopolitical issue that, that, that we're going to be dealing with for, for a long time. Um, I don't see any resolution any sooner than two years, certainly. Um, and frankly, I could see this going on 10 or 20 years um, with the level of severity that ebbs and flows with different administrations and different policy stances. Um, so, but you know, having said that, I, I don't think in, international investors can just say, "Well, hey, I'll just I'll just avoid um, investing in China." Uh, the economy is large, uh, it's diverse, and it's globally influential. Uh, inflation is relatively low. Uh, the government's stable, and there's a large middle class that's been established, and it's still growing in numbers. Um, and then, most importantly, there are a lot of really interesting companies to consider. And with all the volatility that we see in the Chinese stock markets. Uh, the opportunity to find good discounts among high-quality businesses is just too great to ignore that market. Um, so the way we're approaching it is uh, we're continuing to learn about the broader political and economic landscape in China and learn about as many good businesses as we can uh, in that country. And, and so, you know, I want to make sure we're confident that the next time there's a meaningful sell-off in China, and I'm, I'm confident there will be uh, <laughs> at some point in the next five years, um, we want to be ready to take advantage of, of that opportunity. And that's really the way we're behaving toward these issues between the U.S. and China. We have no ability to predict how these negotiations will go in right. any given time frame. And the, and the trade war and, and the, the headlines are basically the gift that keeps giving. So, you know, we, we get... 
well, I'm not going to do anything until after the election, followed up immediately by, well, we've got a phase one trade deal agreement. So that, that to your point, that volatility that will continue can present an opportunity, you know, when you're looking at that market. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um, so let's look at the other major story on the international scene from uh, 2019. And again, this one goes back to really mid-2016, and that's Brexit. Um, you know, we finally have some clarity on the departure of the UK from the European Union, although the details are still to be worked out. And when I say clarity, it, it's less opaque than it was before, if you will. Um, but we had the election results in mid-December in the UK, which basically, you know, from all intents and purposes, seals the fate of the UK exiting Brexit, although we don't have a timeline. You know, the huge win uh, by, George, by Boris Johnson's party, you know, really solidifies that, that Brexit, um, at least we think. Um, so what have you learned over the past year about the politics of the UK and the prospect uh, for that country's separation from the EU? Yeah, oh, well, uh, so first of all, this, this outcome is, is, is not at all the outcome that I would, if you would have said, Grady, you have to predict an outcome at the start of 2019, <laughs> this outcome would absolutely have been the opposite of what I would have expected. And that's probably because I get a lot of my daily news from the Financial Times. Yep. So I'm reading comments from people who, who are very negative, who were, who were commenting very negatively on the idea of leaving the European Union, who were very negative on Boris Johnson. I mean, it just kind of shows you how you can be, how you have to be careful with politics to start to really buy into one side or the other. Um, but the other thing that's, that's interesting is, is if I would have known this outcome was coming, given the way I was seeing <laughs> what I was seeing in early 2019, I would have thought we'd have maybe a, sell, a, a temporary sell-off in the pound, a temporary sell-off in the markets. And of course, kind of the opposites happened. The pound's been stable and actually has climbed a little bit and the, the markets have been you know, stable to up this year, uh, UK markets. Um, so I guess what I've, what I've learned is that if I'm not careful, I can let uh, UT, UK politics consume way too many brain cycles <laughs> Um, with no actionable insight as, as a result. But, um, you know, and we've been overweight UK um, since the international strategy's inception um, because valuations became, you know, more compelling after the initial Brexit vote in right. 2016. Um, my understanding now is that the UK and the EU are going to have to iron out a trade agreement before the end of this year, um, or they're going to be at risk at reverting uh, to the WTO trade framework, which is just going to introduce additional friction. Um, so although, as you mentioned, we're closer to a headline resolution, um, there's still a lot to be determined, and we could still see some volatility around different news flows that happen. And of course, there will be some impact to both economies, depending on how they iron out these trade relationships. Um, but I think the main, the main serious thing I've learned uh, over the last few years is that well-managed companies figure out ways to continue to just run their businesses in the midst of uncertainty. So, you know, we own a specially insurer, uh, Beasley. They set up some office and legal, offices and legal structures in European countries to make sure they had continuity in the event of a no-deal exit. Um, GlaxoSmithKline began to establish some legal structures to make sure that they can maintain research and drug production throughout the EU, uh, regardless of how the negotiations went. Um, we own a small... Uh, kind of specialty retailer, they're, they're, they're a home improvement retailer, Howden Joinery. They've made some adjustments to their supply chain as a result of all of this. And, uh, and really, we haven't seen a major impact in the underlying fundamentals of these businesses based on these investments that they've had to make. So, you know, as long as we see management teams um, building in contingencies and making sure they're resilient in the face of different um, outcomes, you know, I think we can use these sell-offs as an opportunity to, to add more to higher quality companies. So uh, 
We'll shift gears a little bit, talk about rates. Uh, according to Bloomberg data, uh, the amount of negative yielding debt worldwide uh, really climbed in 2019 from a low point of, of $8 trillion to a peak of $17 trillion in late August um, amongst all the volatility around the trade wars that, that really peaked in August before finishing the year at around $11.3 trillion. International equities delivered strong performance with the Morgan Stanley Capital International All World or I'm sorry, All Country World or MSCI ACWI, um, excluding the U.S. index, uh, delivering more than 20% during the year. Um, and the same index, including the U.S., uh, delivering nearly 28%. How did the combination of negative interest rates, minimal inflation, and ballooning country debts impact the international equity markets? Yeah, well, I, I personally interpret these things negatively, um, but as you noted, returns were almost uniformly positive throughout the world this year. Um, I think starting point valuations played a bigger role in uh, on equity returns this year than almost any other kind of you know macroeconomic factor or broader picture factor. Um, but at the individual business level and what we're seeing in the portfolio for me and how we're thinking about risk management, I mean, it, it's troubling. Um, you know, we have to watch out for management teams making dumb investments. Um, we are, are companies that hold net cash positions just aren't earning much return, although we think in many cases these companies are being prudent given where we're at in the cycle. Um, business, we have businesses like uh, British Telecom with big pensions, and they're seeing the actual value, actuarial value of the liabilities really grow despite the fact that they're making a lot of progress toward toward trying to control these pensions, and this is just a function of having very low discount rates. Mm -hmm. um, we own a couple of banks, um, BBVA, its net interest income margin is very weak. Uh, we own another bank, K-Bank, which is a, a third largest Thailand bank, um, and their net interest in income margin is coming in. And so, you know, not only are we seeing lower valuations as a result of just having, you know, lower income based on the, the, the interest margin, but also we have to watch out to make sure these banks aren't taking excessive risks to try to make up, make up the difference other, in other places. Um, we own some wealth managers and asset managers, and obviously, you know, if returns are lower going forward, their fees are going to come under scrutiny. So we have to mm -hmm. kind of watch out how we're modeling the fee, fee uh, growth or fee declines for these types of businesses. Um, and then, you know, finally, pricing power. I mean, if we're in a lower inflationary environment, um, it's harder for companies to have uh, pricing power. So we have seen, you know, relatively weak growth out of some of this consumer products uh, goods. Unilever's putting up, you know, weaker growth than we would hope to see over the long term. So all of this for us, I mean, there's a lot to worry about in the portfolio mm -hmm. um, based on these issues going on. So, um, so I, I actually interpret it as kind of, you know, it's just putting up a lot of yellow kind of caution flags in my mind. Um, another topic of the past year has been the deceleration of, of global growth. You know, we've talked about it in the United States, but it's also um, pretty widespread. So what was the, the divergence, if any, between developed market growth and emerging market growth in 2019? Yeah. So um, first, going back, there's been a de general deceleration in growth, obviously, throughout 2018 and 2019. Mm -hmm. And the IMF had to continually revise its forecast down for global growth throughout 2019. Um, and I think the market had embedded that in the valuations coming into 2019, because we obviously had that very rapid sell-off at equity markets in the fourth quarter of 2018. But the difference has been about 200 basis points. So mm -hmm. global growth in 2018 was 3.6%. Uh, I, and, and we had 2.3% 2, 2 growth in, in, in 
advanced what they call advanced economies and uh, and 4.5 percent in what they call developing economies. And the projections this year are for global growth of 3.0 percent, or this was as of October, um, with advanced economies growing 1.7 percent and emerging economies growing 3.9 percent. Um, now, the IMF expects a little bit of a pickup and actually expects a little bit more of a, of a wider spread between EM growth and, and developed market growth uh, in 2020. Um, but if you look at the drivers of the growth for EM and what's driving the growth, I mean, the countries that are driving it, uh, China, mm-hmm. uh, India, Africa, and what they call the ASEAN 5, which is Indonesia, Malaysia, Philippines, Thailand, and, and Vietnam. So it's really not surprising. Some of these places were getting better population growth than, than in advanced economies. And also, mm-hmm. you know, we're off of, on a low base where GDP per capita is, is a lot lower. Um, so, you know, hopefully, I mean, our expectation, the way we're thinking about it, is, it, it, it for, for the portfolios that we'll continue to see this trend where, you know, India, China, some of these com- countries continue to put up stronger growth. Um, we're looking for direct exposure where we can get it, or we're looking for companies that are exposed through their global operations, um, Unilever, Diageo, ABI. These are the types of companies that have a significant exposure to emerging market growth. So 2019 saw growth, widespread exploration of, of ESG, or environmental, social, and governance uh, investing, not only here in the U.S., but across the globe. Activists like uh, Greta Thunberg brought environmental issues to the forefront. Investment managers continue to expand offerings to include ESG-aware products. In your opinion, uh, is this a trend that has legs, and does the international portfolio take ESG into consideration when investing? So I might be a little py- Pollyannish, um, <laughs> but over the course of my life, I feel like I've seen a lot of forward progress in terms of just treating each other better, treating the environment better, uh, having better working conditions for employees. Um, so I personally feel like the world has been moving in this direction for a long time. I mean, obviously, there are fits and starts and there are, you know, there something bad happens and then we think about it and talk about it and then we kind of figure out, figure out a better path forward. Um, but now we have a name for it, and that name is ESG. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, 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 so the cynic in me, um, the cynic in me, thinks it's a way for you know the asset management industry to find another way to differentiate. Mm-hmm. Um, there's the optimist in me also thinks that because we now have a name and there is a lot of focus on it, um, it'll just push us harder, and these trends will kind of accelerate, and we'll work even harder to do the right thing. To what really boils down to doing the right thing. Um, so as far as the international strategy, uh, this all definitely factors into our analysis when we look at a business. Um, so, for example, we, we believe the oil demand growth will be will be very low. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's projected to be low, but maybe it'll be even lower than the for, than the forecasts currently uh, call for. And um, this factors into our valuation for energy companies. And right now, we don't own any energy companies in the international strategy. Many of them look statistically statistically cheap. So. Mm-hmm. That said, um, we don't exclude any investment, and, and I would love to own an energy company at the right price um, because it, we wouldn't exclude an investment because it scores poorly on, on an ESG right. measure. Um, you know, our job is to earn an appropriate return for our clients and, uh, and be good stewards of their capital. And so in my view, um, anytime you close your mind to a particular type of investment, you kind of move further away or you put yourself in a position to move further away from that goal of generating a a good return. So over the past three years, uh, we've seen a push in the United States to adopt what I I feel is more like a 1920s type of isolationism. 
um, approach to global trade via the trade war and this America first mentality. Was 2019 another step, in, in your opinion, in the direction to reduce the interconnectedness of the global markets? Yeah, I mean, well, trade volume in the first half of 2019 was at 1%, according to the IMF. And they say that's the weakest level since 2012. Um, so at least by this measure, uh, in 2019, the world was definitely less interconnected. Um, and then, of course, you know, we're seeing the U.S. administration make heavy use of tariffs, exit multi-country agreements like the Paris Accord and the mm -hmm. Trans-Pacific Partnership, rewrite NAFTA, make ne negative remarks about NATO, just all just a range of things that, that, that suggest a more isolation type approach. Mm -hmm. um, I think uh, long term, though, the world will continue to head toward interconnectedness. And the logic is just too compelling, in, in, in my opinion. Um, if you think about it, just personally, if you had a terminal illness and the drug that could cure you was produced by a Chinese pharmaceutical company, how would you feel about trade restrictions on right. that particular drug? Um, if you own a business, I mean, you want access to the best markets. If you're head of the university research department, um, you want the best talent. You don't care where they're from. And actually, The Economist just wrote a nice article about Chinese students in the U.S. this, this, this most recent week. And it's a really, it gives a really interesting discussion of how interconnected our universities actually are right now. Um, so I think we'll experience periods of backtrack as we are now. We don't have to really kind of get too deep into the concept of comparative advantage to understand that interconnectedness is better than isolation. I mean, it's just mm -hmm. common sense in my, in my opinion. So lastly, geopolitical events uh, over the past year carried a pretty heavy emphasis on rising populism, from protests in Paris with the Yellow Vest to, to Hong Kong to Latin America, all pushing for reforms in greater equality and freedom. Um, how did these various events around the globe impact your outlook for the coming year? So broadly, my outlook is mostly impacted by valuations and the fact that the margin of safety throughout the portfolio broadly is more narrow now than it was when we exited 2018. And so what that means in my mind is forward five-year returns will be lower over the next five years than they were at the starting point of mm -hmm. 2019, just simply because our margin of safety is more narrow broadly across the portfolio. But as far as finding these individual flare-ups, Hong Kong, uh, Chile, these different areas. I mean, we're, if, if the country has an investment framework that we think is, is, is reasonable, that we can generate a return and, and look for businesses to buy there, we're going to try to find opportunities. Right now, we're looking at some businesses in Chile. Nothing has kind of rose into something where we want to add to the portfolio yet, but we're looking at it closely at a few things. Um, and so that's the way we look at these various kind of flare-ups that happen throughout the world. Great. Well, Grady, thank you for joining me. I appreciate the, the recap of 2019, and we'll talk to you soon. Thanks for having me. This material is for informational purposes and is prepared by Diamond Hill Capital Management. The opinions expressed are as of the date of publication and are subject to change. These opinions are not intended to be a forecast of future events, a guarantee of future results, or investment advice. Reliance upon this information is at the sole discretion of the listener. Investing involves risk, including the possible loss of principal.